This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as my handle, at Laura Zarrow. Well, we've been busy celebrating Kamala Harris for all of her firsts, we haven't paid enough attention to another transformative aspect of her ascendance to the vice presidency, her family, a big, blended, multiracial family that includes the nation's first second gentlemen. While there's much about them that's novel in the pantheon of presidents, they're a lot like many of us and signal a core value at the heart of what the country needs right now, a partnership between men and women that redefines gender norms to help everyone thrive at work, at home, and as a family. We're going to talk about why this matters so much, the specific challenges men face as caretakers, and what can be done to make it better for everyone. And our guest today is just the person for the job, Josh Levs, one of the leading global experts on modern dads at work. He's an award-winning former journalist, a United Nations gender champion, and author of the award-winning and really insightful book, All In, How Our Work-First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, how we can fix it together. And not for nothing, he's also one of our very favorite guests. Josh, welcome back to Women at Work. I'm so happy to be here and so happy to be here at a time when we have some positive and exciting things to talk about amidst all the awful things that have been going on over the last several years. And last- <laughs> yeah, we, got, we got some celebrating to do. I know, it's like a ray of sunshine. So tell me, what is it that has you the most buoyed? What's lifting your spirits the most? Well, I'll tell you this, I live in Atlanta and Georgia has been engaged in some really fantastic developments, you know, over the last several months, especially people have seen that when you get people engaged, when you get minority communities engaged and help protect voting rights, all these things that you can make a huge difference. And, and you know, Atlanta just helped change the nation. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited for the fresh start of this year uh, for some actual leadership in the nation that can help us address the pandemic. Um, and, you know, there has been so much that's been so awful, especially over the last year. I mean, 2020 became a, its own joke. For right. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, even during that, I was trying to focus on gratitude and, and all the great work that first responders are doing and, and people at the front lines. Um, but I will tell you that I look at the, the way things are shaping up for this year, and I'm increasingly optimistic that we're going to work our way out of it this year. What is it that's doing that? Is it changes in leadership, in policy, or a kind of um, embracing of bridging the gaps? Like, is it interpersonal? Is it political? Yeah. What's stoking it? So in order to advance, you know, I always say in order to advance in this country, we don't have to love each other, but we have to work together. And this is true in businesses as well. It's true at every level. You have to work 
together. Um, and our leadership in Washington for the last several years was completely opposed to that. It was all about tearing people apart into as many tribal groups as possible. Um, and the new leadership is more about let's work together and let's make positive things happen based on facts, based on truth and justice. And so, you know, especially as a longtime journalist, I'm seeing hopefully this resurgence in um, a commitment to science and facts. So, so there's all that, but I also recognize that the, the leadership we have in the country sets a tone for businesses um, mm -hmm. and for the way we feel every day. And we need to work together based on common understandings of the facts. And I think we now have a, a real chance to do that. So I want to bring this um, dive in and talk about what's going on in your life right now. And okay. also connect the dots to how we first started to, you know, periodically check in and talk about how we make changes happen. Um, you're an engaged dad, and it's not just because you're home in the time of COVID. <laughs> no, I'm a typical dad um, by being very engaged, and I always have been. You know, when my uh, kids were, were born, my oldest is 14 now, so I've been at it for a while. Um, but I worked out a position for myself. I was at CNN at the time. I worked out a position for myself where I would, I created it. I'd be on the air, but not traveling. It was always important to me to be home, to be here, to give the kids that stability as much as possible. Um, and so I, you know, I've always loved that. And it's number one to me, which, you know, the data show it is typical. This is normal for dads. We have some new research out from this brand I partnered with, Dove Men Plus Care, that shows the overwhelming majority of men to this day put family over, over business. But it's not something that people know about. It's not something that people talk about a lot. Um, so yes, I'm a very engaged dad and I love being an engaged dad, um, but that just makes me normal. <laughs> yes, but there are a few things that make you a little special, Josh, and it's not that you're an engaged dad, like you said, um, it's the activism that you've sparked, that you've been generating. And I think it's now for what, almost seven years since um, you confronted some real policy system barriers that put you on a path to creating greater change. So for the listeners that don't know about you, that haven't tuned into some of our past shows, give me the little, help catch us up on how did you get started in going from engaged dad to really frustrated dad to activist dad? Sure. Yeah. So that position I created for myself at CNN was fact checking and I was fact checking all these politicians and pundits. And then since I was becoming a dad, I started to do segments about fatherhood and realized that people had this misunderstandings about modern families. And I started fact checking modern fatherhood and pointing out the extent to which dads are actually doing caregiving. And then there was this big switcheroo where I became the dad in the news because I took legal action for fair parental leave. There was a preposterous policy uh, that I was under back at CNN Time Warner and my legal action to give men and like me a chance to be equal caregivers uh, got all this attention. And ultimately Time Warner revolutionized its policy making it better for, for moms and dads. I was invited to write a book for HarperCollins called All In. That book then once it came out, I, I opened up so many opportunities I left CNN and I started working full time with all these businesses and organizations to transform policies and cultures so that we treat men as equal caregivers, which is the giant missing piece of giving women at work equal opportunity. So talk to me more about that. Um, you know, one of the things I'm also tired of is as much as I'm, you know, a relentless champion 
for women's rights, women's voices. It's the oppositional stance that we take um, as if it's binary, like men are bad, women are good. We are in this together. So talk to me about more in kind of like a more data-driven way. What's that interrelationship between the engaged dad and, you know, the functioning mom? Yeah. You know, I was invited to do this uh, uh, debate on feminism at Oxford. And for that, I went and learned a lot about feminism and feminist history and the term. And I discovered that the that feminism by definition means gender equality. It's about equality. It's not about superiority of either gender. Uh, and there have been women fighting at the forefront for equal rights for decades who understood that men as caregivers were a central issue. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she championed men as caregivers. So, uh, but most people don't know this and it hasn't gotten as much attention. And so what people need to understand is this, that um, until workplaces and society in general make sure that um, families can make their own choices about who does how much caregiving, they're really taking work opportunities away from women and home opportunities away from men. Part of that data I mentioned earlier from Dove Men Plus Care, we have a figure showing 85% of men um, would do anything to spend more time at home, but they can't afford to lose their jobs. And what's been happening is men have been fired or demoted or lost job opportunities for taking a flexible schedule for taking paternity leave um, because of people who have these old ways of thinking that only women should do that. So until we eradicate the backward ways of thinking about men, we won't fix things for women. And this is the, the big unknown history of the Mad Men era that just <laughs> as it has been um, it, so structured to prevent women from succeeding at work, it has been equally structured to prevent men from having equal opportunities at home. Everything that holds back women at work holds back men at home and you cannot solve one without the other. So it sounds like there's also a fundamental negation of the importance and reality of family care in the system of how work is structured in this country. Yeah, uh, it's been it's interesting because it's um, been negated when it comes to work. Yes, it's been negated when it comes to government, but it's also uh, also often given lip service by business leaders and government leaders who say, oh, caring for a family is the most important thing a person can possibly do. And you know, some of them think that they have more respect for women. They think that, oh, women are meant to be doing all this work at home and making sure that women can continue to do all this work at home is so wonderful of them. Um, what they don't understand is that if you if you take this value of family and you run it through a sexist prism saying only women should do this, then you're doing the same thing at work and saying only men should do this. And, you know, I always tell people, like, no matter what your personal beliefs are of gender, everyone can understand the basic fact that businesses do best when you have the best minds in the right jobs. Well, guess what? Women are half the people. So statistically, Chances are half the time a woman is gonna be the right one for the job. But if you have a gendered system focused on caregiving that says that women should stay home and do the caregiving, then you're preventing the business from having the best people as well. So yes, you're exactly right, Laura. Like people are negating the value of caregiving while giving it lip service at the same time. <laughs> it's such an irony. So Josh, you know, not unlike feminism. It's been a long road. You know, a lot of people get tired on that marathon journey of creating change. It was seven years ago that you wrote the book and that you started working in this capacity and really diving in, not just as 
Um, and I don't want to oversimplify the kind of activist and advocate you are. You're also consulting on a regular basis with organizations. And you're talking about this kind of like this lack of alignment between what they say and the culture and the decision making that's embedded in, organ in the organization. As you're starting to work, you know, organizations that are bringing you in, I'm guess their heart's in the right place. Their lip service is at least pointed in the right direction. When you get inside the organization, where are the, the schisms? Where are the things that have to change? Um, so I say 20% policy, 80% culture. Okay. So you have to make sure that the policies are designed to give everyone equal opportunities for flexibility and for caregiving leave, for example. Um, in fact, after my legal case uh, against CNN Time Warner, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission sent out guidance uh, that all businesses everywhere applies to all of them, saying, for example, that women should have, you know, can have paid time off for physical recovery after giving birth, but that you're required to clearly distinguish paid time for caregiving for a baby and caregiving leave has to be gender neutral. So the policies do have to be there. But when you say the biggest schism, it's in the culture. It's you can have things in writing, but ultimately your culture does not support men as caregivers or, or operates on the expectation that women will take the time off and men won't, which is where you get these punishments. Um, but you know the, the biggest linchpin there, the biggest thing we can do is to create communication and conversations about it. And what consistently happens when I go to businesses, to uh, federal agencies, to organizations, anywhere, and I talk about this, then afterward, for the first time, men start talking about their challenges and how they wanted to do more caregiving and haven't been able to because their careers have been threatened. Um, and women start saying that they had no idea this was even going on. Folks don't talk about this. I had this one guy who announced that right afterwards, he announced that he and his wife have a child with um, who's on the autism spectrum and has major um, uh, medical meetings a couple times a week and they've always struggled because the wife works full-time too he's a top manager and the women afterward told me that worked for him told me they had no idea that any of that was the case even though it's been the case for years and years this is the norm that that we're not talking about it and so we need to create communication in which we open up the opportunities for men to join all conversations about uh, work-life balance and work-life integration. And when that happens, a lot of change follows. So I want to break this down a little bit because I feel like there are a number of components to these kinds of dialogues. Um, one is this, what has long been, particularly in formal corporate settings, a taboo against communicating that there's anything in your life against work, yeah. you know, aside from work, that you live for work, 24-7 availability, and it doesn't matter what it is. So there's that as an ingredient, but then there's, it, uh, and I'm wondering about the relationship of that, that kind of relentless work culture that grinds people to a pulp versus the challenge, particularly with, and often in those settings of the, it's okay for women to acknowledge that they want to parent or need to, even though women often get their career paths get impacted yep. by a cultural that's anathema to that because of the other thing. Mm. But where it's about letting men express the desire to love and engage. Like when you talk about a kid with exceptional needs, there's a practical component there. But it's also making room for men to say, I'm missing something that matters to me. 
and not being ashamed to say, I love my kids and I want to spend more time with them. So what's the balance of ingredients in this mix? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. So first of all, it's important for everyone listening to understand that talking about the challenges facing men does not take anything away from the challenges facing women. This is, I tell people all the time, paternity leave, for example, is a crucial women's rights issue. Men as caregivers crucial women's rights issue. Um, and women get stigmatized in both directions. Women get stigmatized for taking time for caregiving and sometimes for not taking time from bosses and coworkers who say, shouldn't you be with your kids? Um, so, you know, all these stigmas have to go away. Uh, and with with men, you're, you're right. There are these examples of times in which it opens up an opportunity for a guy to say, um, yes, I care about this. I need this as well. Uh, but, you know, the this is also where we get into the pay discrepancies and the wage gaps, which do exist, not so much for the same job these days. It's more that the women can't get the higher paying jobs. Uh, but you have a couple, let's say a traditional couple, a man and a woman. The man makes more money. Um, statistically, that happens more often. Uh, the family cannot risk the higher salary. So the man recognizes that if he starts talking about the importance of caregiving because of relentless work culture and people who think that a good employee is someone who's at their desk all the time, uh, he will then pay a price. He will then come across as being less interested in the promotion or less deserving of the next opportunity because he doesn't want to travel all the time because he doesn't want to work 24 seven. And so part of the, the fix here is rethinking work culture and expectations. And one thing I do with companies is I say, set aside the old idea that the person at their desk the most is the most productive. Instead, look at how much did someone get done in a month or a quarter? Right. The outcomes. Want. It's not the same people. The same people who sit at their desks all the time are almost never the most productive people. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when you're working with organizations, are you, where are you landing in the hierarchy? Um, are you starting purposefully with, you know, real leadership, the CEOs, the COOs? Are you working with middle managers? Um, and what's the difference of how you enter the organization to how it changes? Mm. So I'm usually brought in by someone at around the VP level. And it usually starts with uh, a speech for the whole uh, company. And they'll broadcast me everywhere. Um, and I always push in advance. I say, get all the members of the C-suite there, get them there, make sure they're there. And sometimes they're not physically there, but then I say, make them watch the video afterwards. But whoever is the highest level person that comes into the room, I make sure and meet with them afterwards. And I say, these are the things we need to do. Then there are different levels that I operate on. Like there are workshops that I do for employees in general, because um, following policies and, and building culture change is strongest top down, but it can also come as a groundswell from below. There are ways that we can do that. So I do these workshops at employee level um, and I do workshops focused on managers uh, because one of the biggest problems for managers is that they just assume that it's better for the company to keep people working all the time, to prevent them from taking time off. And I explained this actually not, that you're gonna do better in the long run by supporting that kind of work-life balance. Um, and I work uh, at, the, at the policy and big picture cultural level with the C-suite. So I try to work at all levels and it's different with each company, what they're ready to have me do. But as a rule, once we get started, it, it uh, kind of permeates everything. And, and I reach out like tentacles across the organization. 
Um, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm talking with Josh Lebs, um, one of our really major change agents when it comes to advocating for dads, women, families in general. Um, and he's the author of one of what I, on my short list of most important books to read if you care about this stuff all in, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. So Josh, when you're talking about the kind of work you're doing with organizations, there are a couple of things there that strike me as really important and potentially applicable, even if you're not coming into a major corporation, which is, it sounds like there's a multi-pronged strategy here that um, if I take the model of you come in and you're giving a talk, a speech, you're introducing the community to these ideas, um, but then you're in meetings with leadership and then you start doing workshop. Peel back for me in those meetings with leadership. Now that you've like oriented everybody with the vision and the message, what happens in those meetings? Dollars and cents. That's a lot of it. Um, you know, because of my background in fact checking, I'm able to come in uh, not as someone preaching a message of like, oh, let's all kumbaya. Uh, but instead of, uh, I said, I come in with a legitimate business argument focused on ROI, focused on uh, at what's actually proven. And look, this gets back to government. If we were a fact-driven nation, there are a lot of things we would do differently. <laughs> and, uh, one of the many problems, though, is that when it comes to data research, what's best to, for businesses, all this, um, in this era of Google, like if you want to say, does allowing employees to work from home make things worse? You can find 20 quote-unquote studies that say it does, or 20 that say it does not. Yeah. Um, and so what I, my background as a fact checker, what I do is I go into raw data and methodologies and see what does the data really say? And no one does this in journalism. They just, it just doesn't happen. So when I come into these companies and I'm meeting with leadership, I show, look, the numbers of men who are switching jobs uh, or leaving your company are, in order to have more time with their families are much huger than you think. And I show them that data. I show them the data of replacing employees. I show them the data of how many women are dropping out of the workforce because of these problems. And the, the cost of attraction and retention are very, very high. It can cost 200% of annual salary just to replace one employee. Mm -hmm. So I go through all this data with them and I say, look, this is just factually what happens. These places that you hear that are starting to address this modern need for equal caregiving, they're not doing it to be nice. They're doing it for good business. So when I'm at that level, that's what I show. I show managers that and I show uh, bosses that. But if I'm dealing with individual employees, I have a system in which I do these four stage workshops and the first stage is only men because men will not talk about this in front of women because they're convinced that they'll unintentionally say something offensive. <laughs> that a woman will say, you man in the patriarchy, you don't get to talk about uh, about the, the challenges of you know trying to balance. And that's exactly the wrong, that doesn't happen. I tell them that's not what's gonna happen, but they need to feel comfortable first. So through those stages, we steadily introduce more women until it's 50-50. And suddenly there's this conversation in which all people are hearing from each other in a new way for the first time. And that empowers them to change the organization from the bottom up. So Josh, it, there's so much in there that's important, but one little point is that it's interesting to see the fear in having the dialogue. Mm -hmm. I think we also have it as those of us who are trying to be anti-racist in order to be better allies, mm -hmm. is how do we sensitively, with self-awareness, engage in the converse conversations that are going to close the gap without extending the gap? Yeah. 
Yeah, and we all, and, and so there's all of that. Um, and there's also these focuses on appearance in all kinds of other ways, you know? I mean, men, um, I see this with boys, men want to come across as being quote unquote manly. Mm-hmm. And so the value of that and the challenge of that, it creates so many complexes. I mean, really, like if you had to boil down how Trump became such a mental disaster, like <laughs> that, that is where it all starts. Like what manhood is and what masculinity is. And, right. And that toxic masculinity. Yeah. I mean, he embraced the toxic version um, because that's what he was taught and because of what was drilled into him at an early age. And so there are people who have that and wrestle with it and don't want people to know things about them that they feel stray from that. Um, but the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of men are, are not like that. The problem is that in workplaces, we've had this vicious cycle in which, even if they're not toxic, the few men who have put work over family, who have spent more time at work sitting at their desk, sitting at their desk, they ended up valuing themselves based on their careers more than the time with their families. They then look for men like them who, to lift them up the ranks and give them, the, uh, there's a Harvard study that showed this, I talk about it in my book. So it's a vicious cycle. So the few men who are like that lift up the other few men who are like that and others get left out of the power sphere. So that's why at work, a lot of people, a lot of men, do stay quiet about this. They don't want to get left out. Yeah, it's clearly interrelated and really complex. Um, so on the right before the break, we were talking about this really persistent and important complexity that men are experiencing of the combination of the external structures and systems that are really designed around dad works, 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 mom stays home. If we try and do something other than that, the systems are going to push against it. But also a kind of internal, interpersonal dynamic that's occurring where um, dads have to kind of stay in the closet about being engaged caregivers because of a culture at work that rewards the all-in worker. Talk to me a little bit about how that either got made better or worse in the time of COVID. And I'm guessing it didn't get better. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it did get worse. So although there there is reason for hope. So um, when all this started a year ago and people were starting to stay home, I immediately saw that we were going to face a fork in the road. Um, I'm a big fan of allowing people to work from home. It's necessary and of flexible schedules. Um, and for a long time, uh, even when organizations have started to allow that, they've culturally prevented men from taking it. So I saw that there was this opportunity to um, have it play out because suddenly organizations didn't have a choice. People were working from home. But if business leaders made the mistake of thinking that this is what working from home is usually like, or that this is what a flexible schedule is usually like, then they're going to associate those things with lower productivity because this is not normal. We have our kids at home. <laughs> right. home. Millions of us, I don't, but millions of us have uh, sick loved ones to take care of as well. Uh, you cannot expect the same level of productivity. And so I became worried. What about when the pandemic's over and people, uh, bosses look back and they say, oh, when we let people work from home, we got so much less done. Um, so they could be opposed to those things in general. So that's a negative. Um, but what I also saw happening early on, because men and women brought me these stories, 
of that, there were still sexist expectations. So there's a woman who contacted me, she's in Houston. Her husband's boss kept saying to him, well, why can't your wife just take care of everything? Well, she's a lawyer, she's busy too. Right. But there are situations in which those gendered expectations have still played out. So the fact that we're at home doesn't make gendered sexist expectations disappear. So how do we navigate this time so that we can pave the way? Because if I'm understanding, and I see this in real life, we have several um, kind of faulty litmus tests. One is personally, how productive am I? Do I feel productive? Do I miss work? As you and I talked about, it's hard to judge that without taking into the context of what our lives are like. Like, I'm at a stage of life where I have an 18-year-old who went, who fortunately and successfully went off to college this fall. So my work from home life was not that different than it would be working from home pre or post COVID ideally. What's your home reality during COVID? I'm guessing it's not quite that simple. No, we've got three kids all from home, um, all doing school from home and needing things, of course, uh, you know, needing help with schoolwork, needing to connect in different ways, needing um, to be fed at lunchtime, obviously. <laughs> uh, Crazy, Josh, you wanna feed the kids? Feed the kids, what? Um, and I was already working from home. My wife was not, she now does. Um, and it's a constant, um, a constant adjustment. You always have to pivot and figure out, oh, on this day, I'm not gonna be able to get much done during these hours. Um, and I am leading with gratitude and feeling very fortunate. You know, my business has been very good and I can afford to not work at times and do all this. I know that a lot of families don't have those options. Um, so, and I'm also, I've also been grateful that I don't have a two-year-old or a three-year-old who really <laughs> right. needs to have constant, like actual constant attention. Please. I remember that stage when I didn't believe she could ever safely be in a room by herself. <laughs> No. Well, they couldn't at one age. Right. They actually can't. You know? Now that she's 18, there's that question all over again, but for different reasons. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's, there's an age where like, if they crawl around on the floor, they will figure out how to pull those plastic things out of the sockets and stick their fingers in. You exactly. You really can't leave them alone. Um, and so not having daycare options. So it became super difficult for, for lots of families. So, but when you ask about our family, like, you know, as difficult as it has been, I understand that we have it better than so many others. So we're okay. Right. But this also reinforces that idea that your reality of working from home during COVID is very different than it was when you engaged in remote work beforehand. And so like as employees, I know I got a survey. My employer is great about this. And they sent a survey. How do you feel about this? Would you be interested in this post COVID? But when we're answering those questions, we're not always given that the dependent question of post-COVID, your reality will be different. Yeah, it may not be as hard at home. Yeah. So, and with me, and that's exactly it. And so, you know, one thing that I've been encouraging businesses to do and individuals to do um, is to be as blunt about their reality right now as possible, so that their their managers, their leaders, know what they're dealing with. So, literally, say. Um, yeah, I know we needed that by Thursday, but guess what? From noon to three, I had to go deal with this with my kid. And then I had to run over to the nursing home to get my mom who can't see anyone the following things. Um, and then just see what they do. You know, if, if they are not willing to show enough respect for you, then when times are good, you're going to leave and you're going to want to work somewhere else. And that will ultimately hurt them. 
um, and just productivity in general has to change. So, you know, I, I understand that a lot of people are too afraid for this. Um, but if you look back at my schedule, my experience, I took legal action against CNN Time Warner. So <laughs> clearly, I'm not someone who gives into that fear. But you don't have to go that far. But you can at least take the step that's a risk in your own way of saying, you know what, I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to be blunt. I'm going to say this is where things stand. And if you do that, there are a lot of people who will support you. So let's talk a little more about that, because I think this is an area where people need real advice. Um, it's, you know, Sheila Heen and Doug Scott kind of, you know, created a revolution by giving us a handbook for talking about difficult conversations. And part of it is because so, ma so many people stay silent rather than step into the, the anticipated awkwardness, um, which can sometimes not be awkwardness, but a real palpable feel that they're going to be punished for being honest. So in our workplaces, um, what advice would you give to somebody kind of like to prepare for that kind of conversation, to frame the conversation, and then how do you follow up from it so that you haven't committed professional suicide in the process? Right. Um, you know, it's interesting when HarperCollins asked me to write this book and they said, we want you to do it as a polemic and and give people the steps. And then I turned in my draft and they liked it. And they said, but the one thing that you didn't do, we literally want steps, like actually end chapters with a list <laughs> of steps. And I was like, oh, you meant that literally. So I did like boil it down. And and it ultimately, it starts with, I believe, in, in starting with the presumption of best intentions. I always, and this is what I did with CNN Time Warner, I operated on the assumption at every stage that they would do the right thing. And it was only after everything fell apart and they refused that, that I took action. So start with the belief that they'll do the right thing. Talk with your manager, talk with the executives, talk about the culture and the policies um, and expect them to do the right thing. And it's only if they don't that then you exercise your rights. And most people don't know that they even have rights in the workplace, but you do have rights. And if there are any sexist expectations of you at all, then that's just a violation no matter where you live or what job you're in. No, no professional environment can do that to you. So it is important to know your rights going into it. But I also talk about creating a community and a groundswell of support because whatever you're dealing with, you're not alone. Find the others, compare stories, share your stories, talk together about solutions. Then together, go to managers, together go to executives and say, the following things would be hugely helpful to us. And when it's a group of you doing this, they're more likely to listen and to, to not brush it off. And surprise, surprise, often they'll be happy you brought it to them. There really are terrific bosses out there who say, oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that that would be helpful. I'm glad you brought this to me. Sure, let's make that work. So really, we have to start. I mean, this, I think, applies to a lot of things in society right now, is that we have to presume that there's a goodness in the person on the other side and not to draw assumptions about why the problem exists. Yeah, this is what's going on on a national level. Um, right. <laughs> no, I mean, this is it. Like, there are, look, there's, I say, stand for truth and justice. So facts first. <laughs> and then, you know, then you put those those through your, your ethics and you understand. And the truth is, like, if many people have the facts, then they'll make the choice to do the right thing. And there's some people who won't. There's some people who are just downright so deeply prejudice based on sex or race or other things that they, they won't join you in wanting to fix these problems. But you'll find the ones that do and they'll work with you. 
and they will create a community with you. And you know, as tough as it might be to take those risks, it's nothing compared to the people who are standing up against inequality, who are standing up for racial justice, who are you know saving lives too. So we all need to be willing to stand up and to put fear aside. So Josh, you put an article out recently that included kind of three really tangible, actionable steps that we can take as we're having, as we're trying to make change happen in the workplace, particularly in these unusual times. And it, while it included kind of things you just referred to of speaking out against stigmas, sparking conversations and supporting policy changes. I wanna talk a little bit more about those kinds of conversations because it seems like they're in a couple of different realms. So one is obviously being learning how to say, I'm facing this challenge. I still want to do excellent work. How can we work together to adjust this? But then there's the conversations where we're not speaking, but we're listening. Where are the places that we need to be listening to each other in the workplace in order to help change the system for moms and dads at work? Yeah, this is really good. We should ask as many things as we share. Um, we should uh, invite people to um, share their experiences, but not ask them to be experts on anything. Uh, you can't just you know, turn to a woman and, and say, uh, would you please explain to me why all women, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have clients who are black who are feeling very much now just exhausted from people asking them to explain everything um, or assuming that their their experiences will stand for all black people. Um, we need to have I'm a big fan of one on one uh, conversations about all these challenges. But the the real big step is to ask in the first place. You know, I, I said in this TEDx talk that for a lot of guys, it would be revolutionary if a woman at, who, that they work with even virtually now turned to them and said, listen, I've been struggling with blah, blah, blah. I know you have three kids or you have two kids or you have a mom you're taking care of. How are you handling this? And just being invited to talk about that at all uh, would, it is revolutionary. I mean, guys tell me this, the rare times that they get asked, it's, it's, uh, stunning and emotional because they don't get asked these things. So listening to men uh, about their challenges is important and listening to women about their challenges is important. Um, and, you know, we have a, a, unfortunately a long history of thinking about the importance of women supporting men at work. We need to think more about men supporting women at work, which brings us back to Kamala and her husband and how, you know, he is a very public advocate for his wife as a professional, which should not be a big deal. This should be completely normal. But, you know, this is part of what we all need to do as well in our own lives, talk with our partners and our friends and saying, what are you struggling with right now? And what kind of support do you need? And also, it sounds like how to help men um, be embraced and celebrated when they are the support system. One of the things that Doug Emhoff has done that's so... I, first of all, I think quite appropriate, but also important as a role model is that he stepped out of his full-time job. He's had his own really big career. Sure. And, but has taken a back seat and it's gonna be interesting to see um, where his energy goes as our first second gentleman. But the idea that part, his being a role model of supporting his wife's success feels quite radical. What is it that we can do, whether it's, um, at home with our own kids, with our own employees, in our culture, to try and help men realize 
how brave that is, how important it is, and hold on to their sense of dignity and self as they're doing that. You know, it's so interesting because we have to do two things at the same time that sound antithetical, but they're not, right? We have to, and on the one hand, bolster it and support it and say how great it is. And on the other hand, act like it's totally normal and not a big deal at all. <laughs> right. Because this is what's been happening with men as caregivers, right? Like the backward idea of men, if you're caring for your kids, you're babysitting them because you're a man, you're helping your wife because you're a man, you are uh, being Mr. Mom, you know, which is like a sexist term that doesn't even make sense. Uh, so what we really need to do is see so incredibly many images of men supporting their professional wives, uh, their wives who, who have professions um, and big careers that, uh, that we just think, oh yeah, that's great that they're doing that. And of course they're doing that. Like, why would they possibly not do it? And what I keep finding is that the more we see it, the more normal it becomes. So yeah, there's Doug Ebenhoff and I wanna to see tons of other people like that who, um, Val, who are willing to step down or to, in some ways, limit their own careers. Like, the guys should talk about this, how they've made choices. Look, it wasn't best for me that we pick up and move to Europe, but it was best for my wife's career. And so, of course, it was what we did. Um, the more we talk about this, um, the more we say, here's an example of it, the more it becomes normal until a whole generation of kids growing up just doesn't even blink when they hear that. And, and as part of it, like the guy should also be talking about the opportunity it afforded them, that because she had this big career, they were able to do something that they wanted to do, which is have more time with their families or explore the hobby they never had, take up painting, whatever it is, like these other things outside of work that you can value in your life. Talk about those things as well, so much that it becomes normal. You know, as you're um, talking about this, and I'm envisioning a world where, um, Men are proud to be caretakers. They can be out of the closet as caretakers. They can like be excited about having successful, dynamic women partners. It made me realize like a fundamental paradigm shift um, that there's nowhere that Doug Emhoff has talked about as a trophy husband. Yet, you know, there's that notion of the trophy wife. And it's something that it's insidious. Hopefully lots of communities have outgrown it, but I don't think it's gone yet. Yeah. And that idea that girls are raised to be that in many ways, that you are the silent partner, your pressure to be beautiful, pressure to present well, pressure to be there so that it looks like your powerful man husband has landed this beautiful accoutrement. And it, there's like so much that's poisonous there. Yeah. And I feel like this is a case where when we can embrace the engaged, supportive male partner, it also helps that ridiculous model go away. Yes, you're right. It also brings us back to something we were talking about earlier as well, which is the culture around work. I mean, what you're talking about is only part of someone's life. This is the, the work that they are doing right now. Um, you aren't your job, even if you're the president, even if you're the vice president. That's a big job with a lot of responsibility, but that's not the entirety of who you are. So this is a role that this person is playing in the professional world right now. But we need to show that we value ourselves based on many things, based on multiple things. And another piece of what's so insidious about the trophy wife is this idea that because the husband is making the money, 
that that somehow objectifies her. I mean, she's doing things all day too. Like, you know, <laughs> she's doing things that also have value in the world, but might not be paying her money because caregiving isn't. So, so the more that everyone, I mean, including, you know, when Kamala talks about her love for her family, when Biden, I mean, look, everyone mm-hmm. can look at Biden, except for like the completely Trumpist morons who have like no clue <laughs> what's going on in the world. Like, you know, any, any sane person can look at Biden and see that this dude values family above all else, even though he's president. There's no question that to him, family comes first. And that, and and Jill too. And that is a really strong message as well, because they're they're projecting the right values. He doesn't come across as someone doing this because he wants stature or fame. He comes across as someone doing this because I'm sure he's ambitious, but also because he knows he can do good things and his kids are, are, are growing, the kids that he's taught. And, and because of what he's been through in his life that is so awful and yet for him in some way strengthening. So the more that we see these expressions of love and family um, coming from people who are in power, the more we are reminded that your work is not the total value of who you are and no human being is a trophy anything. So I wanna take two notions that are embedded that, um, the tenderness and the care and power and talk about um, a potential role that's floated about of a care czar, you know, a radical change in the kind of professionals we need in our government. what do you think about this? And when you think about a CARES are, where's the opportunity for progress? And what do you think the priorities are in terms of policy? First of all, I think the White House should hire you to come organize that. <laughs> I'm up for it, even though I love my job. Just saying. Yeah, well, you can still do this. It's not that far to commute between Philly and D.C. Um, and it is, um, uh, a, it's a genius idea because it is a big piece of what is not being taken care of, you know, in this country. I mean, of all countries, we need it. I've talked about this. I've talked about it at the UN. We're the only nation that doesn't have, you know, a national paid maternity leave system. But I looked into why. And the reason we have that is Mad Men. It's because it's a woman. Why does she need money? You know, this whole idea, it comes from Mad Men. So we need to transform our relationship to care and care work. Um, it's so weird how when governmental conversations, as soon as you talk about the need to like feed children or whatever, it suddenly you get these calls, screams against welfare and food stamps. What about caring for life? What about, so um, I would love to see a care czar and I could give you a list of a hundred things that you could see the care czar department um, carry out, but really we would need, we would need you there to, to oversee it. <laughs> but offhand, out of your list of a hundred, especially when you think about the issues that you're working on all the time, mm-hmm. Um, and this, and particular, because there's a lot of issues that a cares are, and I think about Ijen Poo's work and the mm-hmm. growing silver tsunami and domestic care workers. Yeah. It's why it's a big job. We need yeah. somebody to do this. But when we're talking specifically about families, and the ability for families both to engage in work as an economic imperative, while also parenting, um, what do you think needs to happen at the federal level? 
Mm. So we need national paid family leave. That's number one, because that also is not only a policy, but it creates a cultural change. Individual states have it now. It's taking off at the state level. Uh, it's not a requirement on businesses to pay people when they're off. It is uh, an insurance system uh, in which you have this tiny payroll deduction. And when you need paid time off to care for someone, you get paid through that. It's enormously popular. It's increasing business profits. It's keeping people in the workforce. Uh, there was something called a family. The Family Act. Um, Kirsten Gillibrand was one of the people fronting that. It got nowhere the last four years. Maybe it will now. We need that at the national level because it is a basic. And the only people who are against it are the kinds of people who were originally against FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act. And a lot of them, even in my book, there are prominent conservatives who say they regretted ever opposing that because it's so good for the family. Tell so, me more about that. What was the paradigm shift? Why were sure. they opposed to it? And what got them to change their minds? So unfortunately, uh, you know, our entire political dialogue is poisoned by the ability for someone to use the word tax or regulation. And as soon as you hear that, there are all these people who think that it gets in the way of a free market and they suddenly don't want anything like it. So anything that would cause a business to have to do anything, they think is just inherently So wrong. FMLA was then perceived as big government overstepping its reach. Yes, because it would force large businesses to allow people unpaid leave for 12 weeks for caregiving without losing their jobs. Um, but what ended up happening was it kept more people in the workforce because people didn't drop out of the workforce as much to go do caregiving. And that helped businesses. So people have come to see, oh, it actually was a really good thing. Um, and it didn't hurt businesses at all. Paid family leave is the same thing. It, um, but it creates fund that you get paid through and the business doesn't have to pay you, but you get paid through that fund. So the way it works is that you will take this time off and then you'll come back to work. And so the places that have it keep people working. Um, the people who are against it, they immediately either misunderstand what it is or they think that anything that affects businesses is a problem, but they have that exactly backwards. Businesses right now are stuck with the preposterous challenge of trying to make sure their employees can care for their children. That shouldn't be up to businesses. Businesses are wrestling with this. And why? Do your businesses have to figure out whether your employees' children can go to school? Why should the business have to figure out whether your employees' children can have a parent caring for them for a bunch of weeks after a birth and food under the table? Take it out from the businesses and make it a national plan that works for all of us. And what we've seen is in the states that have that, it creates cultural change as well, in which men become caregivers more often. And that raises the next generation seeing gender equality in place. Gosh, that was just such an awesome connecting of the dots between these things. I really appreciate it. I, this time with you always goes so fast and we're running out of it. So if people want to learn more about what you're doing, they want to bring you in to help their companies learn more, where should they turn? Right. So first of all, everyone listening, you have a, I'm requiring you right now, go to LinkedIn and find me. I'm the only Josh Lebs in the world. <laughs> if you're driving, pull over to the side of the road, do this safely, pull up the LinkedIn app, Josh Lebs. It's the best way to connect because I you see where I am, I see where you are, the kinds of work we do, you can message me there. But all the information, videos, everything you need is at my website, joshlevs.com, J-O-S-H-L-E-V-S.com. And you'll be able to reach me there as well. Josh, I can't thank you enough. It's always so much fun and I learned so much. Thank you for joining us. Well, I'll tell you this, when I become president someday or when you become president, well, if you become president, if I become president someday, I'm making you the cares are. <laughs>
Okay. If you president so someday, we'll have to talk about what I do. Okay. You're definitely in there. I promise. <laughs> Josh, thanks so much. And thank you all of you for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow. You can also get all the backlog of shows that we podcast. Go wherever you get yours and search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow. As always, many thanks to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zarrow and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone, and take care of each other. And we'll shine. Yes, we'll shine. We will shine. We will shine. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.com. Dot upenn.edu. Dot